Amen. All right. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table. There should be some in the uh, seats in front of you, but we're definitely going to use those tonight. Somebody tell me what we've been looking at for a while now. I'm going to break my table here. Oh, there we go. What's it called? Grandma did what? That's exactly right. We have been walking through. We started off weeks and weeks ago. I want to say it was like eight weeks ago. Now we started off in the book of Matthew chapter one. And in Matthew chapter one, we were looking at the lineage of Jesus. We were looking at the people that were kind of his ancestors. And what we found as we looked through that, we found that, um, excuse me, I lost my place here. We found that in the lineage of Jesus, you, you can ever have an iPad where you lock the rotation and you can't actually look at anything on here? That's a bad thing to do, especially when you're trying to look at your notes up here. But we started looking at the lineage of Jesus. And in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, there's a whole bunch of names there. And what we see is something normal. You see all the men. And it's not every man that's in the lineage of Jesus, but there's a lot of the men listed there because traditionally you would follow a family lineage or a family tree through the males in the family, the fathers, the husbands. But Matthew went out of his way in Matthew chapter 1 to include four ladies in that lineage. And it's four ladies that, that are, are all the grandmas of Jesus, but he specifically included some that were women who went through some crazy stuff. We started off, does anybody remember the first grandma of Jesus that we talked about? Tamar, that's right. And then what about was the next one after Tamar? Rahab, both of those ladies did some just some outlandish stuff that we, you, you would not think when you think of a grandma that that's how a grandma would act. If you want to find out what they did, we're not going to go over it all again, but you can go back and Tamar you can read about in Genesis chapter 38. For Rahab you can read about in Joshua chapter 2. And then the third grandma we looked at, what was her name? Ruth, Ruth. Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. That was a good guess. We looked at Ruth, and we looked through that entire book. There were four chapters there, and, and it's by the book of Ruth. And what we saw in that book is we saw a couple different things play out. We saw love play out. We saw hope play out. And, and over and over again, we saw kindness and redemption. And what God did is he, he used the tragedy in Ruth's life and Naomi's life, and he used all of that to, to orchestrate this, this beautiful picture of the gospel. Because in the end, you've got this guy by the name of Boaz who comes in and he's the, the redeemer of these two ladies and the redeemer of this family, which is exactly what Jesus Christ is for anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. He's the redeemer. He makes everything the way that it should be. So tonight we're going to finish up. We've walked through those three grandmas. There's only one left. Does anybody know what her name is? Bathsheba. That's right. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you knew that. So somebody tell me when you hear that name Bathsheba, who's the other person we often think of when we hear that name? David. Who was King David? Yeah, I was going to say, I kind of just gave you the answer there a little bit. David, does anybody know what David was called? He kind of had a, a phrase that was, that nicknamed him. Man after God's own heart. That's exactly right. But here's the crazy thing about David. As you go through and you read the account of David's life, you see time and time again that he was a man that honored God. But there was a time in his life that he made some pretty bad choices. And those bad choices had some pretty terrible consequences. And quite often when we look at what we're going to look at tonight, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But when we look at this chapter, quite often all you really ever hear about is David. 
But we're not talking about the grandpas of Jesus. We're talking about the grandmas of Jesus. So tonight as we walk through this, we're going to see what can we learn about Bathsheba and, and what can we learn for our lives from what goes on with her here. Okay, so we're going to focus not on David tonight. We'll talk about him a little bit, but we're going to focus more on Bathsheba. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to ask you guys to do what I ask you to do every week in honor of the reading of God's word. I promise I won't drag it out, but we're going to read the entire chapter. So if you would stand and we'll go through it and then we'll come back and kind of pick it apart a little bit. All right, here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she went, sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of all and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of, of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebez? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 
The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. Thank you for who you are. We thank you for the time that we have here tonight to spend a few minutes in your word. And God, I pray that, that we'll be different because we've been in your word tonight, God. Help us to understand through all of this crazy stuff that's happening here what it is we're supposed to walk away with. Why does this matter for us tonight? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we've pretty much got a whole soap opera playing out right here in one chapter. You've got a king, find somebody he likes that he's not supposed to be with. Goes to her anyway, and then all of this stuff starts to play out. She loses her husband, all kinds of crazy stuff. It's, it's a big soap opera that's happening. But there's some important things that we need to see happening here. So let's step back through some of those verses, okay? Starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So right here, the very first verse of this entire chapter, we see that David is making some bad choices. Right here is where all of the trouble starts. Because what, what common cultural practice and what history tells us is that during this time, when armies went out to war, the king usually went with their army. They didn't stay back in the city and just get word of things that were going on. They went out. They were with the army. A lot of times they would actually lead part of the battle. So right here at the beginning, we see that David doesn't do that. We don't know why. We don't know if he wasn't feeling well. We don't know if he was feeling lazy. We, we have no idea why David decided not to go. But to put it simply, David chose to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that one single choice that David makes right here at the beginning of this chapter, it kicks off a series of events that end up having some far-reaching consequences for David, for Uriah, for Bathsheba, for everybody involved in this. In fact, look at what happens in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Wrong place, wrong time. David should not even have been there. But he's there and he sees Bathsheba. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, mistake number one, David wasn't where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there. 
Mistake number two, he now found himself in a situation that he shouldn't have been in. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he faces a temptation that instead of running away from the way Scripture tells us we're supposed to do with temptation, he actually runs towards that temptation. Scripture tells us that when we're facing something that we know is going to be a choice that is going to cause us to dishonor God, we are supposed to flee from it. We're supposed to turn around and get, go the other way as fast as we can. And instead, David goes, that's what I want. And in doing so, he sets this series of events in motion. But remember, we're not only talking about David tonight, we're talking about Bathsheba. Let's talk about her situation for a second. She's sitting there doing what she's doing, going about her day, and all of a sudden, the king sends messengers to her. So she's faced with one or two options here. She can refuse the king and not go. But remember, he's the king. The king can do anything he wants. So if she refuses him, it's possible she's taking her life into her own hands. She is setting herself up for some dire consequences if she doesn't go. The other choice is, she goes. But if she goes, now she's breaking that covenant marriage vow that she's got with her husband. So Bathsheba's in a hard place here. Because either thing that she does, there's the possibility that it's not going to work out well for her. And, and we, don't, we don't get insight into her mind. We don't get uh, ideas of what she was thinking or why she chose what she chose. All we get to see is that she made a choice. And the choice that she made causes her to end up being pregnant by a man that is not her husband. We see the soap opera playing out here. And, and you've probably seen this in movies or on TV. Most of the time when that kind of thing happens, people start to take action to cover it up. And that's exactly what David does. Look at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, do, how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? David's basically saying, hey, Uriah, you're here. You've been on this long journey. You've been at war. Now that you're home, go home. Go, go sleep in your own bed. Go be with your wife. Just, just go and, and enjoy being home where you should be. And the problem is, Uriah says, no. This is David, King, I'm not going to do that. He goes on to say here in verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went to, out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. David comes up with this plan 
to cover up the things that he and Bathsheba have done to try and make sure that those consequences don't come back and, and catch them in what they've done. But Uriah won't do what David wants him to do. Uriah won't go to his house. Instead of going to his home, it tells us that first night, Uriah sleeps at the door to the king's house. And then the next night, David actually gives him enough drink that he gets drunk. He still won't go to his house. He says he sleeps on the king's couch with the king's servants. Now that, that's interesting here. You see a contrast because I'm sure that Uriah by, was by no means a perfect guy. But at the same time, you do see some, some honor and some respect in what he does. And you've got the king who is supposed to be, you know, this, this noble person, this man that's following God, this guy that's going to do the right thing that's best for all the people, and he's doing everything wrong. And you've got Uriah who's just a servant, who's a soldier, and yet he's doing the right thing. That, that's something for us to take note of. Because you need to understand that it doesn't matter what position you find yourself in. It doesn't matter if, if, if you're the guy in charge or if you're the one that's taking out the garbage at the end of the night. God calls us to be people that honor Him no matter what our role is. And for some reason at this point in David's life, David doesn't do that. Basically, it comes down to this, guys. Our character matters no matter what we're doing. No matter what our role is. Unfortunately, that character will sometimes cost you. When you decide to honor God, when you decide to do the right thing, you may find yourself in a situation where that may bring harm to your life. It may not be physical harm like we see here, but it may harm your reputation. It may harm you because people will say things about you that may not be true. But in the end, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It matters that you honor God with your life. Your character matters no matter what situation you're in. David forgot that. And because David forgot that, he starts to do things that don't reflect a man after God's own heart. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So basically, Uriah is carrying his own death sentence back to the front line. That's some pretty harsh stuff. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises... And if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, 
Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So Uriah's dead. He's been killed, not by any fault or action of his own. Yes, David's plan set all of this in motion. David is the one who figured out how he was going to cover up his tracks. He came up with this plan to put Uriah on the front line. And just so you know, in case you're confused there, when, when they start talking about this, this who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth, didn't a woman cast an upper millstone? They're talking about something that has happened historically. He's basically saying, hey, you know that if you get that close to the city walls when fighting is happening, that the people in the city can use those walls to harm you and kill you. Why did you get that close? See, they, the soldiers should have known this, but they did what they did because that was the direction that David had given them. He is the one that has made the choice here to actually do things that did not honor God. Yes, David set this plan in motion, but remember, we're not focusing on David. We're focusing on Bathsheba. Bathsheba's willingness to step outside of that covenant marriage relationship that she had with her husband Uriah, it cost him his life. The choice that she made. Do you understand that? It's the choice that she made. Her wrong choice, her sin, had consequences for her and for those around her. Yes, David did the wrong thing. And quite often when we look at this account in history, we say David was the bad guy here. But there were two people involved here. It was David and Bathsheba. She made the choice to step out of that marriage relationship. She made the choice to go be with David. And because of her choice, it had consequences that not only affects her, but it affected other people in her life. Guys, that matters for us because the same thing is true for us. When, when, when we choose to sin, we often think that what we're doing, it's not affecting anybody else. That, that what I'm doing in my life where I'm choosing to dishonor God, nobody else really knows about, so it's not really affecting anybody. They don't know it. It's okay. It's just between me and God. And hopefully, if I'm lucky, I've even got it hidden from God, and He doesn't know what's going on. And, and yet, what we find time and time again, especially if you read on into 1 Samuel chapter 12, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 12, God already knows. God's never fooled. We, we look at it like this. Let me ask you a question. See if you know the answer. Can you scream in space? Why not? Yeah, there's no oxygen. There's no, there's no medium for your sound waves to be carried across. That's the way we think about our sin a lot of times. You get in space and you open your mouth. First of all, you die because the vacuum would suck the air out of your lungs. Okay, there's that. But even if you had the ability to open your mouth to try to scream in space, no sound would come out. The only person in all of creation that would know what you had just tried to do would be you and only you. That's the way we think of our sin. That nobody else knows about it. That nobody sees what we're doing, what we're thinking, the actions that we're taking. That it doesn't affect anybody around us. It's like screaming in space. Nobody knows but me. But the reality is, that's not how sin works. 
even even when you even when you think it's a secret, even when your your attempt to to keep it hidden from somebody Every single time when you choose to sin, you think it only affects you, but the truth is it affects other people around you. Now, you may not always stop to think about how your sin affects the people around you when you choose to sin. I mean, think about this. Uriah, he didn't do anything wrong here. In fact, he's, he's the only one in this situation that did the right thing. And yet, it was the sin of other people that affected his life that cost him his life. When when you choose to sin, when you choose to live in the moment and pursue the things that are present before you in your life that you know don't honor God, those things are going to have an impact on those around you. It may not be like Uriah. You may not have to come up with a plan to have somebody killed. I hope that's not the case for you. You may not lose your life. They may not lose their life. But people will be wounded either by your actions or by your words or how you treat them when you're convicted of your own sin. When when you and I choose to sin, it affects the people around us, even the things that we have hidden. And that's exactly what's happening here. And it goes on in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So Bathsheba was sad. So she lamented over her husband. She mourned over him. She probably cried. She probably felt guilty. All because she made a choice here to live in the moment and that moment had consequences that she didn't see. And as I said before, if you go on and you read the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, you start to see that that David's secret and Bathsheba's secret, it's not just between them anymore. It gets found out. There's a guy by the name of Nathan in in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He's a prophet of God and he actually comes to David and he, he poses this little fake scenario to David about one man that had a lot and one man that had a little and how about the man that took a, that had a lot took something from the man that had a little even though he didn't need to take it. And, and David says, no, that's not right. The guy that had a lot, he shouldn't have done that. And then Nathan looks at him and says, David, you're the man. You're the one who had everything and you took the one thing that somebody who had very little had. Basically said, God knows what you did. I know and God knows what you did. And in that moment, David is finally convicted of his sin. And scripture tells us that he cries out to God and he says, against God alone have I sinned. Now he's hurt other people, but he knows the thing he did wrong was between him and God. But his choice affected those around him the same way Bathsheba's choice affected those around her. And Scripture tells us that that David goes into this time of of sadness and this time of mourning. and, And he does this because of the consequences that happened with Bathsheba. Remember, she's pregnant. And Nathan says, one of the results of this relationship you've had is that the baby's gonna die. Now, Scripture doesn't, tell us here that Bathsheba went into mourning at that same time 
but human nature would tell us that that's probably likely what happened. Because if, if, if you've ever seen a parent who has lost a child, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. And I can't imagine it was just David who felt bad here. It had to be Bathsheba too. And then when that child dies, Scripture tells us that they go through the time of mourning. And then David actually cleans himself up and his servants say, hey, hey, I don't understand this. You, you were mourning when the child might live, but now that the child's dead, you're acting like everything's okay. And David says, I can't do anything now. When the child had a chance to live, I could cry out to God and I could ask him to forgive me and spare that child's life. But that child's not alive anymore. So me crying out to God about his life or that child's life, that doesn't do any good anymore. So it says he cleans himself up. He eats. And then scripture tells us that he brings Bathsheba and makes her his wife. And in that process, they have another son. They have, or have another child and it's a son. And his name is Solomon. And King Solomon goes on to be what we know to be the, the, the wisest king, the wisest man that ever lived. So what does that mean for us tonight? There's two things that I hope you walk out of here with tonight. One of them we've already talked about. And it's this. When you choose to sin, it always affects more than just you. Every single time. Some of you know this reality because you're living it out in your life right now. Maybe it's not the sin that you chose to do. Maybe it's the sin of someone else that is directly affecting your life. I mean, I, you, you guys have, have heard some of my story before. My parents were divorced when I was little, little, like still in diapers. And because of the choices they made, because they couldn't reconcile their marriage, that affected my life from that day till now. And, and some of you are living in that reality. For some of you, it's, it's different things that are going on in your families or, or with your, your friends. They've made choices and their sinful choices are affecting your life. And it's not fair and it's painful and it's not something that none of us want to have to go through. But it still happens. But let me ask you to stop and think for a second. Yes, you may be seeing the effect of someone else's sin on your life right now. But who's being affected by the sin in your life? Who's being affected by the choices that you're making? I know you are. But who else? What other relationship is hurting because you are choosing not to honor God? Maybe if you're here tonight, maybe much like David, you've got to come to this point where you confess to God and ask his forgiveness because that's what David had to do. David was found out, understood that his sin affected not only him, but other people around him. And he cried out to God for forgiveness. And for you tonight, maybe it's your time to mourn the choices that you've made and to grieve for what was lost and for who was hurt and ask God to forgive you of your own sin. You can do that tonight and you can do that with confidence because that is what God does. Because when we turn to God, he forgives us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The debt, the penalty, the price that is owed for our sin has been paid. 
And we simply have to ask God to forgive us of our own sin and then pursue him with the rest of our lives. Because that's what God does. And that's the second takeaway that I pray you remember tonight is this, is that God forgives and God redeems. We have seen that over and over in every one of these ladies, these grandmas of Jesus that we've looked at over the last eight weeks. Over and over we've seen God forgives bad, sinful choices and God redeems a situation that at first didn't honor Him, but God can use it when His people turn back to Him. And that's exactly what He does right here. God forgave David of his sin. He cried out and God forgave him, but there were still consequences for that sin. Bathsheba, we don't know that Bathsheba asked for forgiveness. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But what we do know is that God redeemed their situation and God redeemed their marriage and gave them another child. And if you follow that lineage from Solomon all the way down, you end up at the birth of Jesus Christ. We've seen it over and over and over. God has used the lives of these grandmas that we've studied through sinful choices, through tragic circumstances, through pain, through hope. We see that God can take any situation and redeem it for his purposes. Because that's what the gospel of Jesus is all about. Jesus stepping in out of eternity and into humanity and making a way for anyone who would put their faith and trust in Him to be forgiven and redeemed. And you need to understand that tonight, that no matter what has happened, no matter what sin you've chosen to pursue in your own life, no matter what consequences you're living out because of your own choices or because of the choices of others that you had nothing to do with, Jesus offers salvation and redemption Because that is what God does. So my question for you tonight is, will you give God your situation? Whatever it is that you're fighting with right now, whatever temptation it is, whatever thing it is that you are pursuing more than you are pursuing Jesus Christ, will you stop chasing after it tonight? And will you start chasing after Jesus Start pursuing Him with everything that you have. Scripture tells us that that when you understand and you admit that you're a sinner, when you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and that God rose Him from the dead, and when you confess Him as Lord of your life, Scripture says in that moment, you belong to Him for eternity. And then you have the opportunity to start pursuing Him every single day. And I can tell you right now, that is better than anything else in this world you could pursue. Ask somebody who's been doing it for a little while. God has more for your life than anything you can imagine, but we have to turn to Him to experience that forgiveness and that love. And if you're here tonight and and you've never done that, Right now, you know that you are trapped in the choices that you've made. You are feeling the effects of someone else's choices and sin in your life. You can start pursuing Christ on your own tonight. And if that's you and you want to do that, you can do it right there in your seat when we stand to sing. There's no magic words. You can ask God. You can say, God, please forgive me. I can't forgive my own sin. God, I want to pursue you with the rest of my life. I know Jesus died on a cross for me. 
and I want to chase after him from here on out. Those are my words. There's no magic words. But if you say that tonight and you believe that tonight and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ tonight, Scripture says that you belong to him and nobody can take you out of his hand. If you're ready to do that tonight, I urge you, I encourage you, I pray that you will do that tonight. And if you do it right there in your seat, please come tell me before you leave or come tell one of the other adults because we want to celebrate with you for the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Maybe you're here tonight and you've already put your faith and trust in Jesus, but much like David, you're in a season of not choosing the right things. You know you belong to God, but you've made some choices in your life recently that you know don't honor God. And you just want somebody to pray for you. You can come down here and you can talk to God yourself when the music starts, or you can write it down on that prayer card and you can drop it in this basket. And myself and the other adults in this room will pray for you. It'll just be between us and you. Nobody else in this room finds out. Whatever your situation is, don't walk out of here without God speaking into it tonight. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for stuff that looks like soap operas in the Old Testament where we can see who you are and we can see how you're working and your people. God, where we can see that you love, <laughs> you love despite our sinful choices, despite the things we pursue that don't honor you. And God, I pray that you will help each one of us to know the forgiveness that you offer through your son, Jesus. God, I pray for any person in this room tonight that doesn't know the love that you have for them. God, that they would turn to you right now tonight. God, I pray for every person in this room that they know they belong to you, God, but maybe they're stuck right now. They're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and now there's consequences for it. You already know. Nobody's hiding anything from you. God, remind each one of us that you love us despite our bad choices. You call us to pursue you and honor you. Help us to do that tonight.